Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 105, St. Nicholas the Great. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, today's Pope, St. Nicholas I, was born in 820 AD. He was the son of a papal official named Theodore, and crucially, he was not a part of the Roman aristocracy. This is a big deal. The majority of the last 15 or so popes have been members of prominent Roman families, with one family producing three of the past few popes. So Nicholas is a middle-class pope. His dad worked his way up through papal administration, and Nicholas himself, after basic education, did the same thing. He entered the family business and was eventually ordained a subdeacon and later a deacon by St. Leo IV. He served under Benedict III, and eventually he became one of the pope's most trusted advisors and was well-loved and respected by the clergy of Rome, even those who in the past had hated each other. Even if they hated each other, they all loved Nicholas. Now, Benedict III died, as we heard last week, on April 7, 858. And at that time, Louis II, the Holy Roman Emperor, had just left Rome. And as soon as he heard that the Pope had died, he turned right around and he returned to the city. And he decided, I'm going to use my influence to make sure we have a good Pope, one that likes the Frankish Empire, uh, on the throne. That influence was certainly felt, though it doesn't seem to have changed what was already most likely going to be the result. The elections took, took some time. At first, the Romans settled again on the priest Adrian, but like last time, Adrian refused election. Then they unanimously chose Nicholas, and he was confirmed by the emperor right away and consecrated pope on April 24, 858. Now, Nicholas had to walk a fine line. He wanted to maintain the independence of the papacy, but he also had to face the fact that Louis II was powerful and happened to be camped nearby. So while he reasserted in a Roman synod the freedom of the people of Rome to choose their own bishop rather than submit to outside influence, at the same time, he readmitted it into the ranks of the clergy, our old friend the anti-pope Anastasius, who was an imperial favorite, and they brought back Arsenius, the bishop of Orte, Anastasius' father. Now, Anastasius was made the papal librarian, and eventually the papal secretary, and it's probably his work that we read in Nicholas's biography in the Liber Pontificalis. Anastasius was one of the most learned and prominent church scholars of the time. He was fluent and a beautiful writer of Greek and Latin, and he's going to play a large role in the events we're about to talk about. In fact, Nicholas comes to really rely on him. Nicholas was known for his piety and his love of the poor. He developed an extensive system of caring for the poor in Rome, with regularly scheduled food deliveries and a list of those who were disabled in the city. And though we could say a lot more about him, his assertion of papal primacy, his scholarly side, for now, let's focus on a couple of bigger events in his papacy. The first thing we're going to have to look at is off in the East. And we've got to introduce a couple of important characters first to fully understand the story that's about to happen. They appeared briefly in the last two pontificates, but I didn't mention them because they were really not going to break out into the stage until this episode with Nicholas. And the first person we have to introduce is the conservative patriarch of Constantinople, a man named Ignatius. Ignatius had been appointed patriarch of Constantinople back in 847 as a firm critic of iconoclasm. But that firmness, that conservatism, got him into trouble a couple of times. The first happened under Leo IV, when Ignatius deposed the Archbishop of Syracuse in Sicily for not being firm enough himself against iconoclasm. 
the bishop appealed to Leo, who sided with the Archbishop of Syracuse, which introduced some tension into the relationship between East and West. Nevertheless, Ignatius was a really holy guy. He lived a pious, simple life, and he really called his people to holiness. And in the West, he's recognized as a saint to this day. Now, one of the people he was calling to holiness at the time was our next character, the Emperor Michael III, or, as history knows him, Michael the Drunkard. And his name can probably inform you as to what Ignatius thought about him. Michael came to the throne of the Byzantine Empire at a young age, and real power at that time rested with his mother, Theodora. But Michael grew up squandering time and energy on chariot racing, on, you guessed it, drunkenness, and he was assisted in this by his uncle Bardas. His uncle Bardas thought, you know, if I like let this guy live his crazy life, and I get in on his side and I hook him up, then I'm going to be the one he relies on instead of his mother. And that brought the two together so much that eventually Bardas really took over the power in the empire. Ignatius, who was close to Theodora, preached frequently against Bardas, who had been accused of incest and corruption, and eventually Bardas really had enough. He encouraged Michael to depose Ignatius. You know, that's one of the reasons he got close with him, is so that he could get him to do what he wanted. So Michael deposed Ignatius, and he got one of Bardas's friends, a man named Phocius, to be named Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, it's one thing for the emperor to depose the patriarch. That actually happened fairly frequently. But Phocius wasn't even a cleric. He was a layman. And now, for purely political reasons, he was being made the Patriarch of Constantinople. And Phocius is a name that we really need to remember because he's going to cause us a whole world of trouble. Now, what adds a wrinkle to this whole thing is that though Phocius is illegitimate, he's at least fairly orthodox in certain areas, and he was very intelligent. He was one of the leading anti-iconoclasts during the last gasp of the iconoclastic heresy. So maybe that bodes well, maybe the West will side with him. But at the same time, the monks and some of the other clergy in the East were so opposed to Phocius that he treated them ruthlessly, and he locked up any bishops who disagreed with him. All this drama in the East arrived on Nicholas's desk via an emissary from Constantinople to Rome, and now he had to try and sort it all out. There's this old tension with Ignatius, but on the other hand, he's preaching the right stuff. There's this guy, Michael the Drunkard, although he probably wasn't called Michael the Drunkard at the time, but he's not really the best guy. And then he forces this layman into becoming Patriarch of Constantinople. How do we figure this all out? So Nicholas sends two bishops to the east with very, very narrow instructions to only investigate the claims being made and absolutely make no decision or indicate to anyone else what that decision would be. He also charged them with attempting to return to papal jurisdiction the diocese in Croatia and Sicily. He also sent two letters, one informing Phocius that he couldn't be the patriarch because he was a layman when he was elected, and one to Michael the Emperor saying he shouldn't have deposed Ignatius without checking with Rome. Now, when the legates arrived, they were not treated well. In fact, tremendous pressure in the form of bribes and threats were placed on them to get them to say that Phocius was legitimate. They were not given the power by Pope Nicholas to do so, but after months of pressure, they gave in. And in a council in May of 861 in Constantinople, they decided to side with Phocius and they declared him legitimate. So now more letters head back to Rome, and Nicholas decides to take action. 
First, he's furious at his legates for disobeying him. And he calls a synod in Rome, which reviews all the evidence and comes to the following conclusions. One, Photius is not legitimate. He should be deposed and laicized. Two, the papal legates acted beyond the scope of their authority and must stand trial for their actions. They would eventually become excommunicated. Three, Ignatius needs to be reinstated. And four, all further questions should be sent to Rome for final judgment. Now, Photius didn't respond, though he certainly didn't give in. The Emperor Michael wrote an insulting letter to the Pope condemning Roman practices and papal authority, which probably had some of Photius's fingerprints on it. And so Nicholas wrote a long letter back inviting Ignatius and Photius to Rome to sort it all out, but nothing comes of that either. For the most part, things stay quite the same with a tense status quo. Photius is holding his ground and Nicholas his, and part of the reason for the quiet nature of things was that there was a crisis in other areas to deal with, Part was also because Michael the Drunkard was kind of getting sick of his uncle uh, making him do things, and so he had him assassinated and replaced him with a servant named Basil the Macedonian. So, you know, that's what you do when you're the Byzantine emperor and you don't like someone, you just get him assassinated. Now, an interesting note before going forward, Nicholas needed administrative and diplomatic help juggling all this correspondence with the East, and he needed someone with an excellent range of Greek. And in fact, many letters from the West were purposely translated wrong into Greek, by the translators in Constantinople in order to twist the correspondence in favor of one party or another. So Nicholas turns to a character that we've already mentioned from past episodes, the former anti-pope Anastasius. And at least we think this is the same Anastasius as the former anti-pope. There is a debate on this. Anastasius was reinstated, as I mentioned earlier, by Nicholas. He was made the pastor of Santa Maria in Trastevere and eventually was given the job of papal librarian. Hence, the name that you'll sometimes see with him is Anastasius Bibliothecarius. He was incredibly talented. He was a good writer in Greek and Latin, and he served Nicholas well through all these troubles in the East. And, as I mentioned earlier, he's also the author of the biography of St. Nicholas in the Liber Pontificalis. So in this case, we probably have a really good first-hand account of Nicholas's life from Anastasius in the Liber Pontificalis. Now, back to the East. We have this status quo. But then comes something new to spark the fight again. The Byzantines defeated the Bulgars in battle, and after the defeat, the Bulgarians decided to convert to Christianity. But who should they turn to, the West or the East? Originally, they turned to the East, hoping for their own patriarch in Bulgaria to organize their church. However, Nicholas and Louis II of France were also getting missionaries ready to send there as well. Photius rejected the requests by the Bulgars for their own autocephalous church with their own patriarch. Instead, he wanted the Bulgars to fall directly under his authority. So they didn't get what they wanted, and they turned to the West. And that also corresponded with desire for an alliance with Louis II, which would help balance out uh, their alliances in the East. Now, this is great news for Nicholas, who decided to put together a top-notch team to go to the Bulgars. Now, there were, of course, already some missionaries in the field in the Slavic area of the Balkans. And the most famous were the brothers Constantine and Methodius, who had been working as missionaries in Greater Moravia for some time now. Now, the brothers had been sent from Constantinople by the Patriarch Photius and Michael III to evangelize the Slavic people. But despite the fact that they were sent by Photius and Michael III, they were actually really devoted to the Holy See. 
And they had done tremendous amount of work. They translated the Bible into Slavonic. They developed the Cyrillic alphabet, which is named for Constantine, who would eventually take the religious name Cyril. And they started working on a Slavonic liturgy. And they had the support of the popes before Nicholas. And they were always, like I said, pretty close to Rome. Nicholas appointed as the head of the missionary team in Bulgaria the Cardinal Bishop of Porto, who was a man named Formosus. And again, like Phocius, like Anastasius, Formosus is a name to remember. Formosus at the time was a young, intelligent, pious, charismatic Roman cleric. He had been appointed the Cardinal Bishop of Porto after the last Cardinal Bishop was deposed, having given in to the demands of Phocius in 861. He was one of those legates who was excommunicated. So Formosus gets appointed in his place. And in 866, Formosus was sent as the legate to Boris, the king of the Bulgars. Boris had sent with his request for missionaries a list of questions as to what they actually had to believe as Christians. Because they were getting a little confused with the East, with the West, all these different practices. Anyone who's converted to Christianity knows there's a lot of questions you have. Now, some of these questions are really theologically deep, and it's really awesome about the procession of the Trinity, about married clergy, all these other things. Others are things that we would find today pretty funny. Is it okay to bathe on Sunday? Nicholas sat down and he wrote out answers to all of them, and he sent them with Formosus in a massive letter to Boris of Bulgaria. And I'm going to read you the answer to one question today that's, that's awesome about whether or not it was okay to wear pants. So this is what Nicholas writes. We consider what you asked about pants to be irrelevant, for we do not wish the exterior style of your clothing to be changed, but rather the behavior of the inner man within you. Nor do we desire to know what you are wearing except Christ, for however many of you have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, but rather how you are progressing in faith and good works. But act now so that just as you pass from the old to the new man, you pass from your prior custom to ours in all things. But really do what you please. For whether you or your women wear or do not wear pants, neither impedes your salvation nor leads to any increase of your virtue. It's awesome. Nicholas I, the reason we can wear pants. Now, the Bulgars so loved Formosus and the other missionaries that they asked Nicholas to assign Formosus to be their archbishop in Bulgaria. But Nicholas said no, noting that it wasn't the practice for bishops to change dioceses, and Formosus was already the bishop of Porto. He couldn't then go off and be a bishop someplace else. However, he did ask the Bulgars to select a member of their own clergy already there to come to Rome and be appointed their archbishop. But this response upset the Bulgars, who started waffling back to the Byzantines as soon as they received it. Now, when Phocius discovered the Bulgars had turned to Rome, he was furious. He called a synod in Constantinople in 867, and he denounced everyone, saying that wild beasts had come and ravaged the Lord's vineyard in Bulgaria, teaching errors. And now he tried really hard to defeat Nicholas in this synod in 867. He invited the whole Eastern Church to attend and even went so far as to invite Louis II and his wife, saying that he would crown them emperor and empress and they'd be at the same level as the Byzantine emperor Michael III if they came. But, you know, obviously they weren't able to make it. So once the synod was convened, Phocius had Nicholas excommunicated and then wrote a letter to Louis II informing him Nicholas was deposed and asking him to kick Nicholas out of Rome. Now, this is going to be the beginning of our latest schism with the East, which is known for its cause, the Phocian Schism. And it will be a foretaste of what's going to come centuries later in 1054 with the Great Schism that lasts to this day with the Orthodox. The theological and political disagreements at play then are almost identical to those we're talking about now.
Nicholas responded to this scathing letter by sending letters to the Western Church and to Louis II and to Charles the Bald, asking for their support of the papacy and for theological defenses of the traditional teachings of the church to be sent to Rome so that they, wait, all the thoughts of the theologians could be brought to bear on this. Likewise, he invited Cyril and Methodius to Rome in 867 in order to show them his support and to keep them close to the papacy and promote continued missionary work in the East. But for now, right as things are ramping up, the situation changed dramatically in the East. Basil the Macedonian, who was the assistant emperor to the Byzantine emperor Michael the Drunkard, decided that he could probably do a better job as emperor than Michael the Drunkard could. And so on September of 867, he had the emperor assassinated, and then he seized control. And this really took the wind out of Photius's sails, but we're going to have to save the rest of that story for next time, because Nicholas's papacy is starting to wind down. But before we go, two other big conflicts in Nicholas's papacy. One, the Archbishop of Ravenna was a little full of himself, as many Archbishops of Ravenna were back then, and he started asserting his authority over papal territory, and he even went so far as to demand payment from bishops not under his jurisdiction and imprisoning their priests. Nicholas dealt with this in person, both in a Roman synod in 860, which John, this Archbishop of Ravenna, attended but then fled, and in Ravenna, where Nicholas went himself to investigate. And then later in 861, when the Holy Roman Emperor sent John back to Rome, escorted by two legates, forcing him to repent and submit to Nicholas. John would have to return once a year to Rome to make sure he was behaving. Now, another big area of controversy surrounded the marriage of King Lothair. If you remember from last time, he had abandoned his wife for a concubine and wanted to divorce his wife and regularize his current situation in order that his children with the concubine could be legitimate since his wife had not produced him an heir. Nicholas stood firm against this in a synod in 863 in Rome, asserting that Lothair was married in the church with his wife and could not just divorce her for whatever reason. Marriage is for life. And this made Lothair especially angry. He marched on Rome with an army, and he cut Nicholas off from food and other supplies for a couple of days. Nicholas held firm, and eventually Lothair removed his army, but this question is still going to linger. Nicholas the Great died November 13, 867. Anastasius, his biographer, notes that heaven itself wept for him and that it rained on the day of his death. Nicholas was a great pope. He was holy. He was energetic. He was devoted to the church. He was a great man. He was buried in the porch of St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by the 106th pope, Adrian II. And we're going to talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or you can find us on iTunes. Just search for Catholic Bites. It's Bites with a Y. Thank you and God bless you.